read recently of a sign that hangs in a Christian monastic house, and it reads, everyone wants a revolution, no one wants to do the dishes. <laughs> everyone wants a revolution, no one wants to do the dishes. It's easy to get excited by visions of world-changing ideas, of high and heady experience, of big moments of spiritual encounter and passionate singing. Easy to read certain bits of the Bible, like um, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And you're like, yes, amen. Or um, where, O oh death, is your sting? Yes, amen. When I was younger, we used to sing this song. Um, some of you will know it. Um, I'm going to be a history maker in this land. Anyone sung that song? Yeah, I'm going to be a history maker. Like, come on. I'm going to be a history maker in this land. Good things, captivating things, important things. He's the God who calls us to work to see his kingdom come, the God who is to be encountered in life-changing ways. But there is a danger in focusing only on these things, that they can result in what Eugene Peterson the author Eugene Peterson calls little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. The beauty of the big moments, wonderful and important in themselves, can overshadow the importance of following Jesus just in the ordinariness of our everyday lives. Alfred Hitchcock once said that movies are life with the dull bits cut out, like car chases, first kisses. We don't want to see lead characters stuck in traffic. Sometimes I find that maybe I want the same. Christian life with the dull bits cut out. But the dull bits, just ordinary life, is where we spend 99.9% .9 of our time. New York Times columnist and author Tish Harrison Warren writes, if I am to spend my whole life being transformed by the good news of Jesus, I must learn how grand, sweeping truths, doctrine, theology, ecclesiology, Christology, rub against the texture of an average day. She quotes author Annie Dillard, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. It is the ordinary day, she writes, that is the proving ground of what I believe and whom I worship. Our ordinary, everyday, mundane, humdrum lives, often boring and uneventful, in my case, filled with children being sick and falling out, bottoms that need wiping, rooms that need tidying, leaks in the roof that need fixing, and a thousand other tasks that just continually hang over me like stubborn rain clouds on a stormy day. These ordinary moments where we spend 99% of our time, where we do 99.9% .9 of our living and our breathing are not to be wished away or cut from the movie just happily abandoned on the editor's floor, but instead of the very moments and places where following Jesus is to be worked out and walked out. The places where following Jesus is to be worked out and walked out. In Tish Harrison's words, we must learn how grand sweeping truths rub against the texture of an average day. So today we're carrying on in a series on our hallmarks. These are not so much what we do as a church, but the characteristic way we do all that we do, things that are true of us as a church and things that we long to be increasingly so. 
They don't originate with us, but instead we sort of borrowed them, plagiarized them, if you like, from Jesus as we seek to be like him. And today we're looking at the hallmark servant-hearted, being a servant-hearted people, less glamorous or immediately exciting perhaps than some others, in one sense fairly ordinary. It doesn't have the sort of take the mountain feel to it, does it? Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. But it is the Jesus way. So let's look at Jesus. If you have your Bibles, just turn to John chapter 13. It's a well-known passage. I'm just going to read it through. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew he was going to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put his outer garments on, he resumed his place, and he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Keep your finger in John 13, where we just were. And if you've got your Bible, just turn with me just a few pages back to Luke chapter 22. John doesn't include this story in his account, but Luke does. And it's set in that same moment, at that same meal, just preceding what we just read. In Luke chapter 22, verse 24, it says this. A dispute also arose among them, that's among the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let your greatness, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves." So the disciples are celebrating the Last Supper, and Jesus does the whole, you know, this is my body, this is my blood shed for you, and somehow, somehow, they start arguing about which of them is the greatest, which of course is like a totally natural segue, right? Jesus is like, I'm going to die for you, and the disciples are like, "Uh uh, but am I the best one? It's just bizarre. Actually, it kind of sounds unbelievable until you, you try to do communion with your kids. 
that's most Saturdays for us. And you witness firsthand just this extraordinary ability to weave into the most reverent moments, the most obscure, unrelated, and entirely inappropriate things. Anyway, this is the context. The disciples' concern about which of them is the greatest. And Jesus, classic Jesus, redefines their understanding of greatness, turning it upside down, as he does so many things, like when he says, you find your life by losing it, or the first shall be last, or love your enemies. Again and again, Jesus plows in the opposite direction to the accepted norms. And that's the context for our passage. This foot washing is actually about their understanding of greatness. Just keep that simmering away while we just get our heads into the passage for a minute. There are a number of remarkable things about this passage. The first is what Jesus does. This is set in the Middle East, a hot, dry, arid landscape, and sandals would have been the footwear of choice. It was also an arable agricultural community in the main, so without wanting to paint too vivid a picture, you can imagine the need for foot washing. But the point here isn't, oh, how lovely of Jesus, or that's cute, or what a role model. But instead, the response was shock and disgust. You can hear it in Peter's words, right? No, you shall never wash my feet. He's embarrassed. He can't accept the situation. Foot washing was for the lowest of the low, and in that context, for slaves. And even within slaves, there was a hierarchy, and foot washing was for the slaves of the lowest category. We think, you know, wow, isn't Jesus lovely? But they were shocked and uncomfortable. Jesus is directly challenging a norm, and it's awkward. It's remarkable because of what he does, but it's also remarkable because of who he is. Look at verse 3 and 4. It says, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his outer garments. John says that Jesus knew who he was, where he'd come from, where he was going. And if you read the rest of John's gospel, you'll know exactly what he means. Other religious leaders, Buddha, Muhammad, for example, explicitly deny being God. But Jesus, directly and indirectly, again and again, claims to be God. Claims to be God. It's one of the reasons it's impossible just to dismiss him, you know, as a nice teacher. The claims Jesus makes are high and lofty. But all through the reports about him, and particularly here, we have this strange juxtaposition of the loftiness of his claims. I'm God. And the humility and the lowliness of his actions, washing feet uncomfortably high claims and uncomfortably low, humble actions. The author John Stark remarked that it was this passage, this juxtaposition that initially drew him to Jesus. The beauty of just this strange combination. This is remarkable because of what he does and who he is, but it's also remarkable because of whose feet he's washing. You may have noticed in verse 2 and 11, it speaks of Judas, who is the one who goes on to betray Jesus, and Jesus knows it. Verse 11 tells us that. Yet he washes the feet of the one he knows is about to hand him over for execution. It's crazy. 
But it's not only Judas. Peter is also there. Peter who will deny him egregiously within hours. In fact, one will betray him. One will deny him. And all of them will forsake him. And he washes all of their feet. Isn't that remarkable? Look at what he's doing. Look at who he is. Look at whose feet he's washing. It's all remarkable. But don't miss what it's about. Like one of those pictures that you look at and you, you know when you see one thing and then you stare harder and you see another. I came across this one the other day. I don't know whether you'll be able to see it or not and if you can't then Google it at home. But if you squint, you should be able to see an old lady's face appearing. Don't worry if you can't. Have a look later. But you know the sort of thing, right? You know the type of thing. The picture washing his disciples' feet has a kind of echo image in it, a hidden picture in it. When Jesus says to Peter, uh, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. When he says that, he's referring to what he's about to suffer on the cross within hours, within days. This story was about that story, this act of service projecting forward to an even greater act of service. Washing not our feet, but our sin and our shame and our pain and our brokenness away. It's all over this story. And it was an outrageous idea to Jews, to Greeks, to Romans, just unthinkably silly. They valued power and might and victory and the greatness and the dominance of Rome was like everywhere they looked. But a God who bleeds, a God who dies, a God who stoops to wash the feet of his enemies. Remember the context for the passage the conversation that gave rise to it. This foot washing is about their and our understanding of greatness. And what Jesus says and does is in conflict with every surrounding ideology. Greatness is not found in power or position. It is not found in empire building or domineering over others. Greatness is found in acts of sacrificial, other-centered love. This isn't um, Jesus washed feet and therefore so should you. It's way beyond that. Instead, it's Jesus redefined greatness, subverting the norms of the day, challenging the selfish leanings of our hearts by modeling for us sacrificial and other-centered love. Verse 15, if you notice, said, For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. And that word example there is often translated pattern. He didn't mean go around washing feet all day. There's only actually one other mention of foot washing in the entirety of the New Testament. He didn't mean go around washing feet all day. He meant take my way of life upon you. Allow your worldview to be shaped by my worldview. It's so much more than copy and paste into your life. This is download an entirely new operating system. This is live into and out of a different vision for life. 
The world around us tells a greatness story. Climb the ladder. Get to the top. Look after number one. Jesus goes the opposite way. He stoops. And he tells his disciples, greatness is this way. Live like this. And they do. It becomes a mark of the early church such that Rome expressed frustration that the Christians, those Christians, look after their own poor and our poor. They serve need wherever they see it, washing feet in a thousand different ways. And the church has continued to. It reminded me of the story of three women, Rebecca, Etty, and Ratna, in Indonesia, who were caught teaching street children about Jesus and thrown into prison. On entering the cell, the stench of human excrement, urine, and sweat hit them, the heat making it hard to breathe as they crawled through the darkness. They noticed the outline of people crouched against the walls, jihadists, drug smugglers, murderers. And you can imagine the fear, the loss, the anger, the sadness, the confusion but in the midst of it, they sensed Jesus with them. And the next morning, Rebecca asked the guard for some water and disinfectant. And the women set about scrubbing the feces-covered walls and floors, washing off years of filth. And it says, as their cloths, clothes, and hands browned from the filth, they reflected on how Jesus had willingly washed his disciples' feet. Even the feet of Judas, who would betray him. If he could do that, then they could do this. If he acted in love and humility toward his enemies, so would they. So when they noticed their inmates malnourished, they cared for them. And when others didn't have enough to eat, they gave them their own rations. One of the guards, reading Rebecca's notes, noticed that she was a doctor. And he explained that he had terrible stomach cramps but couldn't afford to see a doctor. She listened to him, she treated him, and over the next month, 40 prison guards came to her for medical help. It says, so they simply loved those who were unlovely, those who couldn't return their love, those that God had placed in front of them. Eventually, the prison governor, moved by what he saw, released them early. But over those two years, they led 47 inmates and guards to Jesus. 47. Isn't that crazy? Other-centered, sacrificial love. In our house, we often ask that question with our kids. Is that Jesus-y? Is that Jesus-y? That is pretty Jesus-y. I love the story of Rachel here, who, when working on the host team, met a deaf gentleman. She couldn't find any of the translators around, and so resorted to just writing notes on on pieces of paper. She came away from that Sunday with the phrase going round her head, how can I host someone if I can't communicate with them? And she began to get more involved with the deaf community here at Trent. And she started taking classes to learn how to sign and is this month completing her level one in that. That's Jesus-y. Well, the student I heard about this week who embarked on a six-hour round train journey in one day in order just to, to pick up a wheelchair for his friend. Or the 7,500 volunteer hours that are put in through this church and our Compassion Ministries every month. It's all 
washing feet. You know, today we had our feet washed by the car parking team, the chair layout, the guys who laid out all the chairs, the refreshments team. This morning I'm having my feet washed by the kids team. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) In a thousand different ways, it's a thousand different things that carry the aroma of preferring others. Right? But how do we grow in it? How do we grow in this? And just three quick things. We grow in it firstly by staying close to this story. We stoop because we know that God first stooped for us. Paul writes famously, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In view of God's mercy, because of everything he's done, offer yourselves. Because of everything he's done, in response to what he's done, serve. We need to stay close to that story. And when we do that, when we live in response to that story, the story of the God who stooped, it means that we also tell two stories like that picture with the hidden picture that contains another picture. You see, you see Marie um, putting out chairs, but the hidden picture is of the God who stooped to the cross for her. But you see Steve somewhere around the building washing the floor, and the hidden picture is of the God who stooped to the cross for him. Every act of kindness to our neighbor carries within it the echo of the kindness of God, the kindness of the God who stooped to the cross for us and taught us to do the same. 47 came to faith because they washed the walls in the prison? No, 47 came to faith because there was a picture hidden in there of the God who stoops. The New Testament uses the language of fragrance that we might have about us the fragrance of Christ. You know, all those things that we do just sort of smell Jesus-y. So we grow in this by staying close to the story and we grow in it also by confronting other stories. There are loads of other stories all around all the time. A massive one is, is that we are what we do, right? We all know this one. Our fragile identities are buffered by the positions we hold. Perhaps that's you, it's certainly me. We so easily see and are encouraged by our culture to see what we do is the justification for who we are. Like in um, Chariots of Fire, if you've ever seen that film, um, Abraham's, he's facing the 100 meters race. He's been trained for for years, and he says this, I have 10 seconds in that race. I have 10 seconds to justify my whole existence. Our roles buffer fragile identities. And so to stoop, to go low, to let go of that station or position, it feels like a risk feels hard. But this story, this story, this is the story we listen to instead. If we confront those other stories with this story, this story says that we are loved before, that we are enough before we ever do anything. That you don't need to work to be enough 
that you don't need to cling to position or status in order to justify your existence, and I don't need to do it to justify mine, because we are loved before anything else. And when you know that, when that's the story you're living in, then, then you're free, right? Free to stoop, free to serve, free to wash feet. So we grow by keeping sight of that story, confronting other stories. And finally, we grow by looking for the opportunities just in the very normal ordinariness of our everyday lives. Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. But the dishes, feet, walls, learning BSL, putting out chairs, these are the ways that grand sweeping truths rub against the texture of an average day. It is in stooping to serve again and again that we work out and we walk out faith, knowing that every act of other-centered love, no matter how small, is a reweaving of that Jesus pattern Last year, um, on holiday, we visited Holy Island. Some of you might have been there. Beautiful. Uh, and there's this gate with this old inscription on it. And it says this. Don't judge each day by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds that you plant. Don't judge each day by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds that you plant. Let's be people. Let's be a church. Let's be people who in the very mundane ordinariness of our everyday, in and through very ordinary and often mundane acts of service, when it feels easier, but also when it feels hard and when it feels desperately unfair, let's be people who sow Jesus' seed into the ground of our church, of our workplaces, our schools, our hospitals, our families, our city, by stopping and stooping. And in however small a way, whether onlookers realize it or not, weave the story of the God who stooped and of his kingdom in which the greatest is the servant of all.